Hello, everybody. It's Dan Woods here today talking to Laird Popkin on the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast from Early Adopter Research. Uh, I asked Laird to talk to me today about DevOps and data ops. He's had a lot of experience in both. Um, he comes most recently from the Hearst Transportation Group, where you were CTO, correct? Uh, exactly. The Hearst Transportation Group is a group of B2B companies that provide data and data services uh, related to cars, trucks, uh, and airplanes. And you've been moving data around a lot in previous companies. Uh, you worked at Kaplan. Uh, you also worked creating a company for large-scale peer-to-peer uh, uh, -peer data synchronization, Pando. Yeah, Pando Networks was a lot of fun. That's a peer-to-peer <clears throat> -peer network company that uh, I started actually coming out of Warner Music where I learned a lot about peer-to-peer -peer for other reasons. And, um, and so we built a peer-to-peer -peer data delivery platform really focused on legit content that ended up focusing on video games because they have multi-gigabyte installers that have to go out to ultimately Pando scaled up to 140 million users uh, and was acquired by Microsoft and that's actually now how Windows 10 and Xbox One deliver patches and games and so on. So you know data from both the, like acquiring it from the raw source and also distributing it as a wholesale product. Uh, both, both realms are, are in your, your um, domain of expertise. Well, today what we want to do is explore two concepts that I, I think are really interesting and are really current right now for a CTO or a CEO or CIO trying to reconstruct their data platform. And many of us are trying to do that. And so, what I first want to talk about is the idea of DevOps, which you've implemented at several places, and how do you implement that from scratch? Once we talk about that, I want, then want to talk about the emerging concept that people call data ops, and I want to see what kind of lessons we can take uh, from your experience in DevOps and apply them if somebody's going to try to do a data ops culture from scratch. I think that's a great insight, Dan, the, uh, because a lot of people have been focusing on DevOps for a long time because they can take really the learnings out of the manufacturing world and optimizing how you uh, do software development as a process through efficient delivery, testing, and operations, right, DevOps. Uh, and exactly those same learnings uh, apply to data. And the data world uh, at most places is much more like handcrafted artisans than it is like a manufacturing process. And uh, there's a lot uh, to benefit from there by applying uh, uh, more methodology. Well, it seems to me that if you look at the, what DevOps has accomplished, there's two levels that you have to talk about. One is the cultural level and one is the sort of process level. And the process level was all about taking the separation from the operations team and the separation from the developer team and bringing those together so that you had one team looking from the beginning of the process all the way to the end. And then the, the part that was all about process was automating that, streamlining it, providing new tooling, new, new levels of automation. Now then the cultural part about it was looking at the whole system from the perspective of the end user and what experience they were having. And then you would prioritize whatever you were doing to make sure that their end user happiness was optimized. And then that was embellished with a variety of other cultural practices like blamelessness <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and other ways of collaboration. 
you know, and, and then things from other, you know, practices, you know, came in that, that it's hard to, to know, you know, whether they're DevOps or some other agile thing or whatever, but um, common ownership of code yeah. and, you know, the test first de development and all that stuff. But the idea is that the most advanced DevOps situations I've seen is when somebody can press a button and the entire system is rebuilt from the source code repositories all the way to being deployed in production. And that is the magic of DevOps. Yeah. Now, what, what I'd like you to talk about is, first of all, what do you feel the right way to define DevOps? And then let's talk about your experience <laughs> where you actually introduced this whole shooting match into a company that had nothing, none of it going. Oh, yeah. Um, sure, so let, let me start with the, uh, the end, which is, um, so I, I, I see DevOps as really a transformation around uh, culture, and that's supported by a transformation around process, how people work together, uh, and all of that is enabled by tooling. Uh, and the end goal of that is that you can operate without fear and blame, you can move fast uh, and at low risk. So it's an interesting dynamic where you can actually get stuff done faster, cheaper, and higher quality. Uh, when traditionally the argument is you only get two of those. Um, but if you do it right, uh, there's no magic to it. It's just that if you invest across the, the whole spectrum, uh, the, the technology enables better processes, the better processes enables the better culture, um, and so they, they accelerate each other. Let me, let me give you a success story there. Um, the first business unit I focused on inside uh, Hearst Transportation, um, and I won't use any names, it <clears throat> really was a command and control top-down uh, organization uh, where the technology processes were all very manual. So whenever we did a, uh, a new version of software, uh, the release process involved manually building stuff, uh, manually copying stuff, uh, manually editing config files, etc. So every release was very scary and, and high risk. And then the process basically consisted of names of people where, okay, let's get John to do this part yeah. of it, yeah. and let's get Peter yeah. or Mary yeah. to do the second yeah. part of it. Yeah. And, and, and that exactly. was how it happened. Yeah, exactly. And because everything was very fragile and high risk, uh, they did it very infrequently. So you had small numbers of huge, scary releases, uh, and because there was so much fear, and arguably there should have been fear, right? So they weren't wrong. But because of the fear, before any release, there was uh, sort of a meeting, if you can picture a bunch of people playing chicken, all looking at each other, seeing who would flinch, uh, or would the, was the release okay to go out? And so they have that meeting, and then over the next day, they do all the work to get prepped for the release. And, uh, and before that, there was probably a two-week QA cycle. Um, and then afterwards, they would do the release, but the release was a big, long manual process. And then afterwards, they'd spend a day manually testing everything to make sure it still worked afterwards. So the whole release process was terrifying, incredibly labor intensive, like it was nearly three weeks of people's work, right? And so uh, building a new feature and pushing it out there, super hard, painful, scary. Uh, by the end of the process- And infrequent. Uh, and very infrequent. So the product velocity was vanishingly small, right? Because to build a feature was super expensive, to push the feature out was very hard, et cetera. So, I, don't, I couldn't even say what the release cycle was. Uh, you couldn't measure it. I mean, it was quarterly. Very episodic. Maybe every six months. Yeah. Um, and by the end, so a year later, where, the, uh, where that team was, was that everything end-to-end -end was completely automated with test coverage, uh, et cetera. And so my success story there was 
somebody in customer service got a dealer call that the software was acting a little funny in a very old version of IE. Uh, the developer was in kind of an open plan space uh, where he was maybe five feet away from the customer service person. He heard that they were talking about a problem and said, oh wait, I forgot to test blah, 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 ancient version of IE in my JavaScript. He was sort of embarrassed, added that to the test coverage scripts, um, fixed his bug in the software, committed it, which automatically triggered a build, did a Docker deploy to the test environment, ran the test coverage, passed the test coverage, um, and he said, hey, product, owner, uh, can I, should I push this out or did you want to wait till Tuesday? Because they did releases every Tuesday. Uh, and he said, is there a reason to wait? And he said, no. So they pushed it out. Uh, and it was six minutes from the phone call to the fix in production. And it wasn't an emergency. Nobody was freaking out. Nobody was yelling. It was just, I fixed it. Why wouldn't I put it out? Because all the tooling enabled that. So again, it wasn't just that they were smart and they were stupid a year earlier. It was that they had a safety net so you could safely fix things and push fixes out super easily, quickly, because the tools, you know, continuous integration, continuous deployment, uh, DevOps enabled that. Well, you know, this is uh, exactly what we try to cover on the Designing Enterprise Platforms podcast, which is how you make transitions to higher states of operational quality and, and performance. And so... What I'd like to do next is I'd like to talk about, at a high level, the steps you went through to introduce that from starting from scratch and then getting to that, that end state that you just described. How, because obviously you can't just have everybody all of a sudden working differently in one week, or two weeks. <laughs> no. Oh God, no. And, and, and you mentioned that the layers of you know, culture, process, and tooling you know, all uh, need to be served. So. Why don't we go through that process, and then what we'll do from there is start talking about the difference between data ops and DevOps, and then how would you do the same thing in data ops? Sure. So the process I used at that company was that I, I split the dev team into two teams, uh, track one, track two. Um, and track one was keep the current stuff working, bug fixed, et cetera, because you couldn't ignore that completely. And track two was... We actually looked at could we incrementally get there through, uh, I don't know, going from .NET X to Y, et cetera, and ended up deciding that it was more efficient to do a, a ground-up rewrite. So we went from kind of C-sharp with a mishmash of versions to Node Angular, uh, Docker, Kubernetes, et cetera, uh, because it was actually faster to just build that way than it was to sort of take some ancient .NET 2.5 code and upgrade it to 3, to 3.5, to 4, to... .NET Core to blah, blah, blah. Um, and then just one quick question. Did you rewrite the services as well, or were they were those services wrapped yeah. uh, inside of and stayed .NET? Oh, great question. So, the, no, so the, uh, in that case, the services, so the application was HTML front-end, C-sharp server-side, and the new version was Node.js server-side, uh, Angular front-end, and we rewrote both. Uh, and the reason, the reason we picked uh, Node.js and Angular was, well, one, Angular is super popular, uh, and so there was a lot of community support for it. But also, a big part was that way everything's JavaScript everywhere, which meant that I could have developers across the whole stack. So we used MongoDB, which is essentially JavaScript storage. You could think of it that way. Node.js on the server side, Angular on the client side. And so therefore, any developer could work on the entire stack, so I didn't have to have a DBA team, a C-sharp server-side team and a JavaScript client-side team, it eliminated all the friction. So literally... So uh, in, in, in a way, that, that, that sort of 
broke the silos between dev and ops by, by making every, and also yeah, it, it yeah, broke the it, silos it, it, within dev yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. So one of the disciplines we had was that uh, I collapsed everything together in a, in a couple of silos. So one was there was no such thing as database versus server-side versus client-side. If an engineer took a story to own, they owned the whole stack all the way through, uh, and that included tests. So I eliminated the QA department uh, because the handoff bouncing stuff to QA and back, this is a pretty small team. Uh, it just didn't make sense to basically QA had become a bottleneck. So instead I made all the developers responsible for writing their own test code or pairing up with another developer because it was often healthy to, uh, you know, if I'm writing something, have somebody else write test code just because that way you catch assumptions. Um, and so that really reduced a lot of the friction. And, uh, and so to force the issue, we, we worked on a weekly sprint cycle. So every week there was sprint demo, delivery, push to production every week, um, really just to sort of force the issue because bad behaviors can't survive at that kind of pace. Right, and then so you, you were basically able to build a bit of the whole pipeline, exactly. then, then a bit of the new software, and then eventually the whole software. Yeah, exactly. I'm a big believer in a tracer bullet, so rather than working on like a little bit of server-side code, I picked one use case all the way through database, server, client, and built that tiny little piece. And then also and all the tooling that you yeah, need support. Yeah, which meant... Uh, automated builds, we used CircleCI, uh, Docker, uh, we used, uh, at the time, Amazon's uh, ECS, which is their Elastic Container Service. These days I would use Kubernetes. Um, and, uh, but basically, what we did is we brought in a couple of really smart guys to help us get a lot of those decisions made and a lot of that stuff set up. So we've spent the first couple of weeks getting people to wrap their head around the tech stack and getting kind of automated build and so on working. And most of that heavy lifting was by some smart consultants who were deeply experienced in uh, that arena. Um, but uh, everything was paired. So they never went off and did stuff on their own and just sort of handed us the right, results. Right. Everybody was physically co-located and paired. And uh, the other thing I did I thought was kind of interesting was that the two teams that I talked about, every week I rotated people back and forth. So nobody was on the maintenance team forever. They might be on a maintenance team for one week and then the next week they'd be on the new code, new product Got team. It. So every single developer uh, got experience in the new world and, there was no and class the hierarchy, old world. Class yeah, yeah, but, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Because what you don't want to have is some guy to think, oh, I've been relegated to maintenance mode uh, and therefore they're doomed. Uh, and an interesting thing happened over the course of a couple months of ping-ponging back and forth all the time. Some people loved the new world and some people liked the old world. Because to be honest, they'd been doing C-sharp and all that for a really long time and they're very good at it. And they were uncomfortable in this whole, like, Mongo node Angular is a really different animal, right? Right, right. And so people sorted themselves out. So I ended up having a self-selected maintenance versus new product team based on the engineers feeling comfortable and picking what they wanted to do. It actually worked out surprisingly well. Got it. So now, if you start thinking about all the goodness of that day at DevOps, you get the you know, breaking down of the silos, creating one unified team, dramatically increasing automation, um, uh, thinking about the end results and, and how the, what's the effect on the end, end user and using that to prioritize, you know, uh, the, 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 the work that you do. Um, and now we're entering a world in which people are realizing that they have the same sort of problem in these data pipelines that they create. And, and the data pipelines often never were designed nearly as much as a as what you started with you know with your your mm -hmm. um, 
uh, your application. And so that's the first thing, is that you're entering a world usually that is not nearly as engineered and designed. And, 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 and in a world especially where, as we both know from projects we've worked on, where a person's name is the solution. How do I, uh, you know, find out how that data pipeline works? Talk to John, talk to, to Betty, yep. talk to somebody else. And so now that's the first, you know, kind of that, that sort of messy environment is, is one, one thing that you have to deal with. But there's another aspect to data ops that I think is really important, and that is that in data ops, you've got not only the pipeline, but you've also got the fact that the, what's going through the pipeline is actually valuable information that needs to be governed and protected. And that, that the governance and protection of that also has to be included in the entire data ops. So you've got this data pipeline that you're building to do all the acquiring of the data, transforming it into various data uh, stages. Usually I think of it as you have sources of data, you do data engineering to, to get that to be landed mm -hmm. in some format. You then have the landed data goes to modeled data and modeled data goes to purpose-built data for a specific application. Mm -hmm. And that's all working. But then you have the access to the data that you have to also govern and control. And then you have to instrument this whole thing. And then at the, at the, the, the final end of it, Underneath it, you have a whole bunch of infrastructure supporting it that really wasn't built to do this. So, like, there's not Circle CI mm -hmm. for the data ops world yet. But what you want underneath is, the, is is components that can be like that, that can be as much as possible automated and respond to declarative automation, so that you know you don't have to be constantly having ten DBAs running around changing databases all the time in order to yeah. keep up with your, your, your stuff. So now that to me is what the world of data ops is. Making the pipelines work better in automated fashion, introducing a new governance mechanism and mm -hmm. instrumentation of all those pipelines, and, at the, and then also making the, the underlying infrastructure far more automated than it is now. What's your experience of, of, of you know, what people are calling data ops? Um, well, I mean, there, there are definitely a couple of levels to it. I mean, one is that there's the, the software that's doing the data work. So the data science code that's doing modeling and cluster analysis and et cetera, et cetera. But then there's also the data flowing through that platform. And so you have to think about both levels. So I have to think about what's the life cycle of my data science software, uh, which in my experience, most companies, uh, that's not very mature. I will say the data science can be amazing but it's not consistently in source code control. There's not always versioning. There's not, um, you know, for example, in, in product teams or in software development teams, typically everything will be in source code control. You've got some kind of uh, approval release process. So maybe you've got multiple eyeballs for socks and, and so on, right? And so you have this kind of maturity that's been in place for a while. And around data science, a lot of times what you end up with is brilliant data scientists have stuff on their computer that they run. And there may be a copy somewhere else that's deployed operationally. Uh, but a lot of times it'll be just on a box in the data science team that's not really managed operationally in the same way as a, a, an external facing thing. Um, they're sort of a little less managed. And, um, and so you need to manage kind of life cycle around the data science and ETL and so on code, but then there's also the flow of the data through all that code. Uh, and that's not something that software development teams usually think about, unless you're building something like a content management system, that there's this whole other parallel layer. So even though my software is the production 
thing. I've got new data flowing in constantly, getting value, validated, enriched, aligned, uh, right. packaged, far, delivered, et like, cetera. Like the idea is that you don't press a button in the data ops world and, and then have you're done. To rebuild. The button's always pressed. Yeah, yeah <laughs> the, the data is yeah. always flowing. Exactly. So right. So the metaphor is like you got an engine, you got a, a airplane in flight, and you don't get to just like stop the airplane and swap the engine. You have right. to figure out how do you put the new engine in there, but leave the old engine running because the data's got to be flowing. Like at uh, at our companies, you know, we certainly couldn't. You know, Blackboard couldn't say, well, we're just not going to evaluate. We're not going to give any used car values for the next two weeks. Nobody. Yeah. Right. I mean. That's not an option, right? An hour, an hour is not allowable, two weeks, you know, right? So, so instead, you've got to figure out how do you keep all the data flowing all the time, always valid, and then as you're enhancing and optimizing and et cetera, et cetera, how do you, how do you manage that flow continuously? And there's definitely a real art to that. Uh, I mean, but it's engineering. It's, it's, in some sense, it's a bit like how do I keep a cluster of 100 servers running um, when I've got new versions of software getting rolled out and ro deployed out, and how do I keep the versions working together so that my application is running consistently? It's similar-ish, but obviously the details around data are, are uh, different from application logic. And so, to me, the, the challenge of you know, what doing data ops is, how do you break the silos? How do you increase automation? How do you get a bunch more people working together? Yeah. And it's just a much broader problem yeah, yeah. because there's so there's so many more people involved and so much more many more systems involved it's uh, so it's i think it's like you said uh you know you got this tracer bullet going it seems like in most companies there's going to have to be a lot of tracer bullets before yeah. you get to that happy yeah. ending that you had a year later yeah so at most companies that i've been at <laughs> there's, there's you talked about silos and in the in in software development typically you have like product management versus development versus operations silos. In the data world, yeah, there's more because you've got, for example, data science and or analytics, and they use a completely different set of tools and they view the world completely differently from the operational, et cetera, people. And so at many companies, what I see is that the data scientists will come up with algorithms. They'll validate them in POCs kind of internally to their environment, but they're really kind of a toy in an engineering sense, but they'll validate the algorithms. Then they'll hand the algorithms over to a completely different team to re-implement in a different language in order to deploy and operationalize. And there's huge friction costs there. Um, I mean, I've seen projects take six months, a year, a year and a half because you're trying to teach a bunch of computer science majors data science and they don't have the vocabulary and the training for it. So they have to implement it best they can, then feed it back to the data science team and just keep iterating until it eventually works. Because by recoding, I don't know, R code into Java, um, they're just utterly different, right? And so that translation is super expensive. So more and more, uh, I really like using literally the same code. So if the data science team builds a, a function, they don't build it in, say, R, which is nearly impossible to operationalize. You build it in something like, say, Python. And then you can deploy it. Uh, like, I really like using Lambda functions. So if the if the data science team builds a Lambda function and it's properly packaged and source code controlled, I can now roll it out and deploy it uh, without having to pay another engineer to re-implement it, get it wrong, debug it, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's a challenge because I have to teach data science people to think a little more operationally because they have to think about performance right. in a very different kind of way yeah, and, R and itself, uptime. And R itself has never really gone through that cycle. Oh, God, no. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've run a lot of stuff in R and I would never put that frontline facing customers. It's just too unpredictable and 
I mean, it's a great language, but it's a great language on somebody's computer where they can noodle around and try ideas. It's not a really great language for like frontline product. So whereas, for example, uh, Python and NumPy and all that, more mature, more stable, more, uh, you know, so if you can get the data science people to use tools that can be operationalized and then Lambda is very nice because at that point you don't have to worry about managing servers and patching operating systems and all that kind of stuff. It just manages itself for the most part. Uh, then all of a sudden I can run data science at scale super easily without all the recoding, retranslating, right. re-everything else. And it's just a matter of getting the, the two teams to sort of uh, educate each other a little bit. Now, have you run into a situation in which there was a very large data lake, data warehouse, that then had to have a pretty you know, broad and distributed set of governance over it in order to you know, allow people in a controlled manner to get access and inspect data? Oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, so one of the real challenges I've run into there is that you want to have a data lake for people to noodle around and try stuff pretty easily. Like if you're a data science team or analytics team and you want to get, I don't know, weather data and play around with it in combination with your other stuff, that can't turn into a three-month-long ETL process. It's got to be super easy because you're just trying ideas around and you want to have an idea on Monday Try, try it on Tuesday and decide if it's a good idea or a bad idea on Tuesday, not put it in a queue for an ETL team to do next quarter, right? And, but at the same time, if you've got core data that you're delivering to your customers, like um, what's the valuation of a car that an insurance company is going to use for uh, determining insurance pricing or the bank's going to use for lease valuations, you really have to have absolute lockdown governance around that data because the, the business impact of getting that uh, wrong is very high. So, so you have to have a data lake and have it be very fluid for some purposes, but have the refined output product absolutely reliable and locked down. And so uh, you have to be careful to maintain that. Um, and I found it was very helpful to put a lot of governance around kind of obviously access control and process. Um, uh, but also building QA into into the tooling. So, um, for example, one of the businesses we're using uh, Talent quite a bit, and Talent has a very it's an ETL tool, uh, and it has very nice capability that you can build into your ETL jobs uh, assertions around what valid data looks like. And if your input data doesn't match up, it will tell you right away. And it's really nice to have it stops early and exactly, exactly. So if a vendor changes their file format or they had a problem operationally or what have you, and all of a sudden I'm getting a bunch of zeros and I should have been getting, I don't know, dollar values, uh, I want to know that in minutes, not because some report looks a little funny two weeks later. Right, right. Uh, and so getting that early warning. And so even though it requires a little bit of effort to build this sort of assertions in, it's not that hard and the value is huge. And so if you build this sort of assertions around correctness in your tooling, it's very much like test-driven development. You find out earlier in the process so that you get alerted before you're giving bad data to customers. Um, and that, that, was a huge, that was an awesome safety net. Got it. Now, how would you go about you know, doing the same thing with a data ops environment that you did when you implemented DevOps? I mean, you mentioned a couple concepts that seem very interesting, like automation of the tool chain and uh, uh, you know the idea of the tracer bullet and everything. How do, how does that work when you're when you're trying to do a data ops uh, implementation from scratch rather than a DevOps? Uh, well, I mean, it's a lot of the similar concepts that you want to have: um, uh, continuous integration, 
automation. So for example, if a data scientist tweaks an algorithm and does a commit into source code, Git or whatever, that can automatically build, deploy, and run through tests just like application code. Um, and it'll take, you know, obviously some of the details are different, like you want to have test sample data sets to run on and, and validation around outputs and that sort of thing. So the details of exactly what it has to look like will be different, but all the principles around source code control and test validations and uh, automation and release process and so on are very similar. Um, and then again, using things like uh, Lambda and so on certainly makes it a lot easier too because it eliminates a lot of the, the heavy lifting. Got it. Right. And so what advice would you have to people who are like thinking about, um, you know, you know, trying to understand what data ops is and, and trying to, you know, find their own ways to you know, put it to work and see if it works? What are the what are the sort of like sweet spots and what are the, 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 the where is it not worth it? Um, so personally, I'm a big believer in automating everything possible just because uh, the end result is such a friction reducer. I mean, obviously, if I'm noodling around on my laptop just sort of trying stuff out, I'm not going to worry about uh, automating everything. Uh, but once I'm doing kind of a real project, it's worth having some test code. It's worth having uh, automated builds and deploys because, to be honest, once you've done a couple of them, it's very little extra work. Um, and as long as you're writing an ETL job, just throw some assertions in there around like, I don't know, these dollar values should always be a positive number not zero or negative or blank. Um, so we're not talking about spending, you know, like I've seen companies spend three times as long on test code as on the core functional code. Um, and maybe if you're NASA or you know, Microsoft, it's worth it. Um, I've never been in an environment that could, that could afford that. But if you do, you know, if you do a little testing over obvious stuff uh, that's e very, very easy to write, you still catch uh, problems much earlier than if you didn't, didn't do that. And I find that's definitely youth worth it. And then if you can align the data science and kind of the operational environments and tooling, that's a huge friction reducer. Because I've been at several companies where uh, data science or analytics would work in tools like R, and then the operational or the product people would have to go recode it all in Java or C Sharp or something. And that could take six months or a year before it actually works. Uh, and that was super expensive and introduced a lot of bugs and took a long time to work through. And, uh, and these days, I mean, particularly, I, I really like NumPy. I mean, I'm sure there are many others. I try not to play favorites with technology, but um, these days there are numerical data processing tools that are operationally rocking. I mean, like Talon, for example, can build Spark jobs just by clicking a button. And at that point it runs you know, like 200 times faster than a traditional ETL. So that's, um, that's not a bad thing. Got it. Well, cool. Well, um, you know, I've been writing about this, um, uh, and I just wrote an article called, you know, uh, why data ops will be different from DevOps, and trying to go over some of these. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'll be happy to send that to you. I would love to see that. And then um, uh, maybe we can talk about that next time. But uh, Laird, it's great to see you and to talk about this data ops stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. It is always a pleasure seeing you.